Welcome to the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series, where your host, Andy Jacob, interviews leading entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs about their incredible companies and discusses their unique entrepreneurial journeys. If you're the CEO or founder of an exciting and exceptional company, the editorial team of Dotcom Magazine welcomes you to pitch your business story to appear on this exciting interview series by reaching out to Mr. Jacob at Dotcom Magazine at dotcommagazine.com. And without further ado, here is another amazing entrepreneurial story on the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. Hello, everybody. Andy Jacob here with the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. I have a very, very important show today. I've been waiting for this show for a number of weeks. You know, if you watch Dotcom Magazine, which we hope you do all the time, of course, you know that we love technology. We love new things. We love people that are what I call shapeshifters, people that are really changing the conversation about their particular space. And of course, very recently, unfortunately, I had a, one of my best friends pass away from a heart attack. And when we started looking at innovations in saving people's lives, I mean, we found Mr. Lynn, pardon me, Dr. Lynn Yaffe, and he is the CEO, of course, and chairman of EPR Technologies. And he has a technology that is just so interesting. And after losing my friend, I started thinking about the types of things that we can do through technology, through different systems, through innovations to save people's lives. Dr. Yaffe is at the forefront of it with EPR technology. So Dr. Yaffe, welcome to the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series today. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it very much to talk it's to you about EPR. Yeah, it's great to have you, Lynn. You know, you are really innovating sort of what I'm calling the CPR space, and now it's going to be called the EPR space. But before we get started, we have so many questions. And for the people watching the show, watch the entire show. I mean, this is going to be a worldwide changing event that Dr. Yaffe and his team are doing. Let's pull the lens back to 30,000 feet. Tell us about EPR technologies, and then we'll get into it. Okay, EPR Technologies is a startup company out of the University of Pittsburgh, specifically the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research, which is named after Dr. Peter Saffer, who uh, passed away in 2003. But he's considered the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. In the early 50s, he developed mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, integrated it with chest compressions, wrote the first book called The ABCs of uh, Emergency uh, Medicine. So uh, he, uh, uh, later on, at the, towards the end of the Viet Vietnam War, he and some army uh, uh, colonels, particularly Colonel Ralph Bellamy, were concerned about how you might be able to save the lives of those combat casualties who essentially had massive bleeding from extremity injuries and abdominal injuries on the battlefield. And because they couldn't get surgery, definitive surgery to them fast enough. So uh, uh, Dr. Saffer conceived the idea of rapid profound hypothermia, uh, which is to cool the body down fast enough so that your body doesn't need oxygen 
for a few hours. Initially, Dr. Saffer called it suspended animation, sort of a temporary suspended animation. And uh, I met Dr. Saffer in about 1995 when I was still in the Navy, you know, looking for technology that could be used to to help uh, reduce the number uh, killed in action. And, uh, and shortly after that, when I got out of the Navy, I started working with him on different aspects of uh, what's now called emergency preservation and resuscitation, temporary suspended animation, rapid profound hypothermia. A lot of animal studies were done, large animals, uh, 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 pigs, showing the feasibility of this. And uh, right now at the Maryland shock trauma, we have ongoing uh, uh, clinical trials. But, you know, there's there's substantial um, anecdotal evidence that this could work. Like uh, people may be familiar that a healthy skier gets covered in an avalanche and it takes a few hours to find them. And then they're resuscitated. In one sense, they cool down so quickly in the avalanche uh, down to as we do uh, five to 10 degrees Celsius, that their body doesn't need oxygen. Their brain doesn't need oxygen for a few hours so they can be resuscitated. Or occasionally someone falls into a, a frozen lake and uh, they're fished out and uh, resuscitated. The difference from what we're doing is that we're not doing it on healthy individuals who unfortunately are in accidents that cool down. We're doing it on on sudden cardiac arrest victims, uh, trauma victims that bleed out. And so that's, that's the goal, to, to, to adapt the uh, anecdotal uh, uh, success to success in uh, real trauma victims. You know, in, in the United States alone, there are about 500 trauma deaths a day, 500 a day. And, uh, the success rate in that number where they're successfully resuscitated and survived is less than 5%. For sudden cardiac arrest and heart attacks that require a CPR, those are about 1,500 a day. And if that happens outside of a hospital, the best statistics only give about 15% of the people survive and are resuscitated by CPR. If you happen to go into cardiac arrest and need CPR in a hospital because a trained team is there immediately, you can, it's 30 to 40% of uh, resuscitation success. So there are many, many cases in the U.S. daily where standard CPR is not successful. If we're able and we're pursuing this first in the clinical trial at a trauma center in Maryland, Maryland Shock Trauma, and then get to the point where we can adapt this to do quickly in the field. If good CPR is done, but they can't get the heart started, with the techniques are adapted to do in the field, you could rapidly cool someone down and then bring them to the trauma center, do whatever surgical repairs are necessary, and then do what we call delayed resuscitation. So wow. that's sort of a lengthy nutshell. I love it, Dr. Yaffe. Of course, the people that watch the show, they know that I grew up in Michigan. And one time when I was a young boy, I was walking across the ice and I fell through the ice. And Ooh, wow! thank goodness it was only up to my shoulders. I was able to climb out. But, you know, you do hear, you know, quite often, especially, you know, in the wintertime where somebody falls through the ice and they, they sort of have this therapeutic hypothermia, I guess we would call it in some, in some way, or they, they get 
they get frozen in animation and then they come out and they're okay, especially young kids. So let's talk about this a little bit because where does it go? I mean, this is a, a profound cooling that you offer, a temporary suspended animation, I guess. Right. Where does it go once the, um, the studies are all done? I mean, how fast can we get this out there to start saving lives? Well, the, the study is, is ongoing. It's not completed yet, and we don't know what the final uh, results will be for the FDA to say, well, let's do this at two or three trauma centers. They want to be very cautious uh, in doing this. But, but I think with success, it'll probably roll out better because it, in one sense, we're not comparing one cancer drug or one treatment for rheumatoid arthritis to another. We're comparing certain death when CPR doesn't work to the potential for saving a life. You, you mentioned therapeutic hypothermia. I should probably say that right now in medicine, there are sort of three temperature ranges that are used. One is mild hypothermia. And mild hypothermia, usually it's done with cooling body wraps. And it only reduces the temperature two or three degrees Celsius, you know, uh, three degrees um, you know, normal uh, Fahrenheit uh, uh, temperature. And that is used in patients who have a severe heart attack. Their hearts are restarted by CPR, if CPR is required, but they remain unconscious. And it's been uh, shown uh, by experiments that if they're cooled mildly, it takes the burden off of heart and and helps to protect the brain during the recovery period. So they can be kept in mild hypothermia, their heart continues to beat for maybe three days, and that's done by cooling wraps primarily. The other is a, a deep hypothermia, uh, um, which is, let's say, 2015 to 25 degrees uh, Celsius, that it is used uh, for uh, difficult neurovascular surgery, brain surgery, when they put you on cardiopulmonary bypass, they like to lower your blood pressure uh, during that procedure to prevent bleeds, and they like to cool you down because cooling is a very good neuroprotectant. The lowest temperature that is used is profound hypothermia, which is 5 to 15 degrees Celsius, which is what we're using. Uh, none of this is freezing. Uh, uh, no one's being brought back from being uh, frozen. So we're interested in rapid, profound hypothermia to eliminate for a temporary few hours the need for oxygen and protect the vital organs. Now, all of that falls under therapeutic hypothermia and temperature management. And, you know, there's some medical journals um, devoted just to that these days now. Yeah, very interesting. Of course, you're a veteran. You mentioned that you did your, you know, undergrad at John Hopkins. You know, you did your uh, went to University of Maryland, of course, for your MD degree. Of course, you trained at Columbia, and of course, the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. When we think about it, what was it back then that, that sort of got you thinking about saving lives? Well, uh, I was always uh, interested in research. And when I was uh, uh, doing a pathology residency at Columbia University, I would also work, uh, go across the uh, river to work at the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology, which was part of Huffman LaRoche. I think it's now been absorbed into the company itself. 
But when I was there uh, decades ago, it was sort of an independent research institute. And I was uh, uh, working there very nicely. And um, uh, uh, during uh, my uh, training, I signed up because uh, the Vietnam was going on. I signed up what was called the Berry Plan after Congressman or Senator Berry that allowed you to finish all of your training and then it obligated you to four years military service. So I wanted to finish my training before going into the military, uh, before going to Vietnam. So I signed that uh, document, obligating myself to four years service. And then the Vietnam War came to an end before I finished my training. But the, uh, I had signed up to the Navy. So the Navy said, well, you still signed up for four years service. So I went into the Navy and... Uh, at that time, you could do research at the Naval Medical Research Institute, which is where the uh, uh, in those days it was located where the Walter Reed uh, um, National uh, Medical Center is across from NIH in Bethesda. And in those early days, they sort of allowed you to do whatever research you were interested in. But as time went on, uh, you know, they had some definitive goals. And I got involved in combat casualty care research, a lot of blood research, uh, a lot of uh, uh, bleeding research, septic shock research, and also looking for techniques that could be used to prevent exsanguination and massive bleeding on the battlefield. Because, you know, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in, in uh, most of uh, U.S. Uh, military fighting, those killed in action die from rapid bleeding, rapid, massive exsanguination. So if you could do something to prevent that death at that point before you could, you know, bring surgical uh, capabilities to the patient, you would have to, uh, you could possibly save their lives. And, and there was a meeting that I went to that the Army sponsored called, of all things, it was called the Lazarus meeting, because it was always about how you could save combat casualties. And it was at that meeting that I met Dr. Saffer, as I said, the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. He talked about his ideas of rapid, profound hypothermia. We provided some funding. And, uh, you know, then when I got out of the Navy, I made sure it wasn't a conflict of interest for me to continue working with him, which it wasn't. And so I started working with him in around 1995. And unfortunately, he passed away in 2003. But the Saffer Center, under the direction of Dr. Pat Kohanic, has continued to be dedicated to uh, uh, brain research, uh, neuroprotection, and um, EPR. Another uh, major player in those days was Sam Tisherman, a trauma surgeon who was one of Dr. Uh, Saffer's protégés, and he's moved on. He's a professor now at Maryland Shock Trauma, which is a premier trauma center where the clinical trial, as I mentioned, is being carried out. So th that's sort of my uh, uh, career uh, uh, briefly uh, spoken. And uh, now because we formed EPR, you know, I spend time uh, working on patents and uh, patents and preparation and also seeking, uh, as you may already know, uh, investment funds, uh, which we've initiated through uh, crowdsourcing uh, via Start Engine, which is sort of a premier crowdfunding uh, um, site that we've been using. We also talk to a number of other investors um, uh, uh, to, to get involved uh, with this via Start Engine. 
you know, they always have to do a little more due diligence. Uh, but we've had on, on the number of investors, small investors mainly, we've almost had 100 small investors. Uh, some surgeons and physicians have invested. And so it's been going nicely. Uh, yeah, that's great, Dr. Yaffe. Everybody that watches the show knows that we love Start Engine. It's a great way. It's a great platform to raise equity absolutely. funds. Now, You've committed your entire life really to be actively involved in research and development programs related to this sort of saving lives. But let's talk about it because people are going to be watching the show. They're wondering probably at this point, how does ZPR work? I mean, we can't get into the full details because most of our, you know, even me can't keep up with your mind. But generally speaking, how does it work? Is it an injection or how do we get these right. people into yes. this hypothermic well, state? Well, let me describe a little bit about how the clinical trial is being done and then how that might be streamlined, you know, because the FDA only allows you to sort of test one variable at a time. Uh, when a patient, a trauma victim, uh, um, gets to the point where, um, you know, in Baltimore, that let's say bleeding, it's mostly automobile accident, uh, they're taken to the trauma center, they haven't lost so much blood that they've gone into cardiac arrest. This is part of the protocol. They must go into cardiac arrest once they get to the trauma center, because the trauma surgeons need to know when time zero is. They want to perform good CPR on the patient, if possible. I mean, if the paramedics need to perform CPR because the patient has gone into cardiac arrest at the point of injury, of course, they do that. But for this initial clinical trial, we only do uh, trauma victims who have gone into cardiac arrest after they arrive at the trauma center. So let's say you're now in the trauma bay and you go into cardiac arrest. The trauma surgeons immediately start CPR, obviously. You know, they, they put a mask on. They don't have to do mouth to mouth. They can easily intubate, give you oxygen, do chest compressions and defibrillate you. And maybe they'll get your heart started. If they can't get your heart started, they may work on you with effective CPR for 30 or 40 minutes trying to get your heart started, okay? If they can't get your heart started and they then determine whether you could be an eligible candidate for EPR, and that's usually uh, based on that there's no evidence of head injury. If you have a massive traumatic head injury, the chances of success are reduced more. But, but if you've been bleeding and that's the reason for your cardiac arrest, whatever trauma you had, they do the CPR. CPR is failing. At a trauma center, they'll do what's called a left thoracotomy. Well, they'll open the left side of your chest and with a gloved hand, obviously, they will manually squeeze your heart, trying to get blood to the brain, which is the most important thing. And they will do a defibrillation directly on your ventricle, you know, the way they do it on the chest. But if they still can't get your heart started, they then make a decision whether they'll do EPR. And if they do EPR, you know, as one last effort to save your life, they will put a catheter, you know, a tube, about the diameter of your index finger, a large bore catheter, directly into your descending aorta. The aorta is the large primary vessel coming off of your left ventricle. So they'll put that catheter into the upper portion of the descending aorta and, and do a purse string suture. 
and perhaps they'll also clamp the lower portion of the aorta, and then they rapidly pump in perhaps as much as two to four liters a minute of ice cold saline into that catheter. And because they've clamped off the lower aorta, that immediately through the carotid arteries goes to your brain and cools your brain. They have a tympanic um, thermistor, a, a tympanic temperature probe in your ear. And they've discovered through experiments uh, uh, with large animals that that's a good indication, the tympanic membrane temperature, which is also the cold saline is going into your entire head, that that's an indication of brain temperature. So when they get your temperature down to, let's say, 10 degrees Celsius, you know, 50 degree, 40 to 43 degrees Fahrenheit, then they can uh, uh, open up the, uh, the clamp on the descending aorta and, and, and start to flush saline into the rest of your vital organs. So now you've been cooled down to 10 degrees centigrade. You know, when they're, when they're flushing in that cold saline, and all it is is physiological saline, there are no additives. We've worked with some additives to help protect the brain. But of course, the FDA only wants to show, understandably, that rapid, profound hypothermia in and of itself can save a, a patient. So there'll be future clinical trials for, for additives and modified techniques. Now, the blood that is flushed out of the body, of course, you know, the, the patient is on a, a table where you're able to collect that. And uh, we have plans to do that in the field because obviously they don't want all that uh, blood, uh, you know, spilling out onto the trauma uh, uh, bay floor. And so then the patient has been cooled down. They can disconnect them, you know, from whatever uh, they were doing, take them into the adjoining surgical suite. And do repairs, you know, if necessary, they open the abdomen, the chest is already open, they see where the patient may have been bleeding, they do their repairs, they'll take, uh, you know, two to maximum of three hours, though they could probably go longer if necessary, they sew that patient up, okay, and they put them on cardiopulmonary bypass at that point, because if you're going to resuscitate them, you've got to give them blood back, so uh, uh, they have blood bank you know, they've already typed the person, so they have an abundant amount of uh, blood bank blood. They, on cardiopulmonary bypass, they give them their blood back. The blood is oxygenated. Once they're rewarmed to, you know, uh, 33 degrees Celsius, the heart may spontaneously start because at the right temperature, the heart starts. If it doesn't start, they'll do a defibrillation and the heart will start and then they can take them off of cardiopulmonary bypass. They keep them sedated, obviously, and then they start dealing with perhaps complicated issues that dealt with the reason uh, of their trauma. Frequently people, you know, uh, post-trauma can have uh, um, organ system failure. You know, they might have septic problems. Those become standard, serious medical, surgical problems. But the idea of EPR, rapid profound hypothermia is that they've had one more chance at survival. They've gotten their heart started. They weren't pronounced dead on the table where CPR was done. You know, so the future outcomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, vary from patient to patient. I mean, w when you look at um, 
you know, the overall success rate of CPR, as I said, out of hospital CPR, it's at best 15 percent, you know, which is not very high in hospital CPR. It may be 30 to 40 percent. So there's still a significant number of people that don't survive uh, uh, even after CPR has been successful. Uh, and of course, many more that don't even get to the point of having successful CPR. So EPR, you know, gives an individual a, one more chance at survival. It's not going to work 100% of the time. And and people that it does work on, it doesn't mean that they're going to get over the hump of, of medical surgical complications. Uh, and, uh, you know, for uh, young people uh, uh, who are generally healthy, uh, uh, you know, it increases the chances of it working. You know, it could be used in, in young drowning victims. There are always little children who drowned in their backyard swimming pools. Um, yeah, it could be used in, uh, in uh, toxic overdoses. You know, think people uh, like a, think of fentanyl. Obviously, you want to give Narcan, but if Narcan uh, doesn't reverse it, and if you think the brain has been protected enough and CPR has been done, perhaps even in those situations, EPR could be used. So, Very so that, interesting. that's how the procedure is done. Now, in the field, of course, uh, I'm sorry, in the field, we want to make it simpler. We want to make it more automated for the paramedic to be able to rapidly cool that down by getting a, uh, a large bore catheter into the aorta. Uh, perhaps using, as we've experimented with, uh, ultrasound through the sternal notch. You know, portable ultrasound is available. And, and to make it very easy for a paramedic to get vascular access, a way to get vascular access easily in a patient that's in cardiac arrest into the uh, uh, femoral vessel in the groin. That's a large vessel. So we're, you know, we've we we're putting in uh, a patent in preparation to make it easier for paramedics to do. Obviously a paramedic would have to be specifically trained for this and, um, and be certified in doing it. But it's like anything else, you know, before they were paramedics, they were just ambulance drivers. I don't know if I mentioned earlier, you know, Peter Saffer, the father of CPR, he trained the first paramedics in Pittsburgh. Before that they were ambulance drivers and it was called Freedom House. He took a, a group of uh, African-American orderlies, and unemployed individuals, and he trained them to be the first paramedics. Wow. There you have a little history of it. I love Absolutely. it so much. Let me get I've a little got a bit lot of that on the start engine uh, updates. Uh, that yeah. I well, your start engine page is great. Now, let's let's get let me get into the weeds just a little bit because sure. you're talking here and I'm saying to myself, well, you're using the ice cold saline right now. What percent of the body after the EPR is done, what percent of the body is filled with the saline and what percent of the blood sort of gets removed? What does that percentage look like? Right. In actual fact, you remove just about 100% of the blood and the entire body. Once you release the clamp on the descending aorta, the entire body is cooled down. Um, and so... Uh, the procedure to make sure your brain, your heart, and other vital organs, liver, kidneys are cooled down, it requires, depending on the size of the individual, you know, a 30 to 40 liter flush out. So um, it, it's, it's, you're cooled down 
uh, with a rapid flush, 100%. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I would imagine just thinking it through about the trauma that obviously this will have some great benefits, of course, in, you know, in the military aspect as well. And, you know, I know that the government really drives a lot of these things when they can use it in the, you know, the military. But my thinking also, and to correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, we look at these, the trauma. And obviously, you know, I'm an older guy now, and I look at back when I was younger. Right now, I, you know, I wake up, I stretch, and maybe I pull a rib, you know, a rib muscle or a muscle in my shoulder when I was a kid. It never happened. Is it perhaps a better outcome the younger you are with the EPR at this point in time? Well, I, you know, the uh, uh, that's possible. In one sense, the healthier you are, perhaps. Uh, you'd have a, a, a better potential outcome. I, I don't think research has specifically looked at different age groups uh, in, um, in EPR, of course, because it's too soon. But I think, in, uh, I, I think I've seen some data that in CPR, you know, uh, uh, if you're unfortunate enough to need CPR when you're in 20s and 30s, you might have a better uh, a, a, a better outcome, but I think it's to a great extent uh, yet to be determined. Um, very interesting, very interesting, uh, Lynn. Obviously, you're doing great things. I mean, the Start Engine page is remarkable. A lot of people are starting to adopt this idea. Let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurship in just a moment, uh, because I want to talk about that with you. But before we do, Dr. Yaffe. Let's think about just for a minute about patents, because I would rem I would think that this has to be a very important part of this evolution of the business is to make sure that things are patented and protected and make sure that the process is handled in an appropriate way. Is that correct? Yes, we we have a number of patents in preparation which uh, uh, for uh, I would say five of them, I'm just about ready to submit. And I'd like to be able to submit them in, in uh, I'll say, globally. I mean, mainly U.S., Canada, Australia, uh, the EU, uh, Japan. But it takes considerable money uh, uh, to submit a patent, uh, a medical patent globally. So hopefully our current crowdfunding um, uh, will and other investment funding that, uh, that I'm working on because in you know we're uh, the uh, some of the guys who are helping me, uh, uh, I think one of them you spoke to, um, uh, Ted Housar, William Ted Housar, he's an enormous help uh, that I think soon we'll be submitting uh, patents. You know the the uh, patent office has a small business um, uh, um, uh, benefit where you can a small business as they define a small business, we'd be a small business, you can submit a U.S. patent uh, for a minimal amount of money, but you have to then, uh, you have to submit the full final patent within a year. And, uh, you know, if you, you have to do things simultaneously, ideally, globally. So this is sort of so unique. I mean, we're the only company that's really involved in EPR uh, there's no competition in clinical trial. And so, you know, uh, we can be a, 
a little bit slow. I don't want to be terribly slow in, in getting our patents, but I, I think we'll have adequate funds soon. And the patents cover a range from appropriate catheter kits for uh, hospital trauma centers and uh, paramedics, uh, uh, specialized, uh, uh, reconfigured, appropriate uh, uh, pump refrigerator with all the bells and whistles for monitoring the patient. There are a number of things I haven't gone into that you want to monitor on the patient while you're doing the cool down. And so all that can be integrated to make it as automated as possible for the trauma surgeon to, uh, to monitor what's being done. And then similar mobile capability once we get to the point where a paramedic uh, uh, is able to do this. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Before we get into entrepreneurship, I'm keeping you a little over. I'm so sorry about that, but no, I have so no, many I questions for you. I'm going to have to bring you back on the show, you know, uh, after you get through this round of this incredible work that you're doing. Let's save some lives, because when we think about CPR, mm -hmm. it seems to me that the CPR protocols have changed throughout the years for the for the average guy and gal out here god forbid something happens and they need to provide some cpr what's sort of the standard right now at a high level just maybe we could save a life or two from somebody watching the show right now well you know the most important thing is chest compressions you know and you have to do that you really i encourage everyone to uh Learn CPR techniques at your Red Cross. The Red Cross in every city, every chapter gives CPR lessons. And I think in many, many schools, particularly high schools throughout the country, they, um, they, they give CPR training on mannequins. You know, as a little side comment, the original mannequin called Rasasa Annie that was put together by Dr. Saffer, as I said, the father of CPR. And there's some interesting stuff in our updates or if you search for Google uh, about the history of, of Rasasa Annie. But um, uh, uh, learning CPR is very important. And through the years, you know, when they started off, you know, uh, you know, beats where you would do, uh, you know, uh, five to 15 chest compressions and then uh, some breathing. And then they've said, uh, we'll concentrate. You know, if you, the first thing to do is you call for the paramedics. Then you concentrate on chest compressions and uh, you don't have to worry about mouth to mouth immediately because there's residual oxygen in the blood. But, you know, after uh, 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 two or three, four minutes, you want to start, uh, you know, five minutes tops think about mouth to mouth. So they've changed a little bit in the timing of chest compressions versus mouth to mouth, get the chest compression started first, and then the uh, mouth to mouth. And that's why I really uh, think everybody should learn uh, CPR. You know, in Scandinavian countries, they, even in elementary school, not that they expect someone under the age of, let's say, 13, to do CPR, they introduce them to the concept. They actually have mini uh, um, uh, um, uh, mannequins uh, for children to practice on, uh, just to learn what it's about. And you know, they go home, talk to their parents about it, and, and that's that's a good thing. And you know, I, particularly 
uh, mothers of the newborn infants, either before they deliver or shortly after they deliver their infant, they should learn CPR. You know, there's, uh, there's been some breakthrough understanding of, 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 um, of SIDS when, when uh, infants uh, stop breathing in a, in a bed. And, you know, in the time it takes to realize what's happening and call the paramedics, a mother or a father should be able to do a C- CPR uh, on an infant. So I can't stress that more, that everyone should learn CPR. The life you save will be a loved one. Yeah, it's so interesting. I remember working on the Resusa Annie. You mentioned that many, many years ago. Let's get into entrepreneurship. I'm going to bring you back on the show. There's so much to unpack. You're so fascinating. Anytime. For, for the younger entrepreneurs, Dr. Yaffe, watching the show, and they're maybe hitting a pothole in the road or experiencing some difficulties or maybe hitting a wall they can't get past. What type of advice can you give based on your career to the younger entrepreneurs watching the show about how, how important it is to keep on pushing and get through those tough times? Well, I, I guess the most important to, is dedication. You have to feel passionate about your, what you're doing. You cannot in any way be discouraged by anyone or particularly an investor who says, well, this is risky or this is too soon. Come back to see me after the clinical trial is done or this or that. You just have to keep hitting and hitting and, uh, and finding a pathway. I mean, you've got to follow your goals and your vision. Uh, and uh, yes, there are many startups that aren't successful initially, but I think if the entrepreneur has a firm belief in what they're doing, and it's founded in a good concept, uh, they should move forward with it. Uh, It's about dedication, loving what you're doing, loving the idea. If you have a way of doing something better, um, uh, one should pursue it. So you should have a passion for it. Uh, Find what you're doing exciting. you know, I, I, and, uh, you know, in a more practical way, how do you go out and find investors and how do you uh, get into crowdfunding? Well, if you're inexperienced in that, you need to find a person who's willing to help you. Like I found uh, Ted Hausar and another guy, uh, Tom Hardiman, uh, who put me in touch with, with Ted, some people who have experience in the particular thing uh, that you're looking at. And, you know, uh, Ted has put me on to uh, pursuing what they call fractional CFOs, you know, who have experience also in raising money. You know, in one sense, I've been, uh, let's say, too devoted to uh, the medical aspects. Uh, And I'm getting more and more in recently to the financial side, you know, the medical aspects, the patent side, I feel I know about FDA side. I know about what's done at the medical center, but um, uh, to be honest, perhaps, you know, raising the money side, I I wasn't uh, as knowledgeable in. So, you know, recognize your shortcomings uh, and get some help. so that would be it. Passion, dedication, recognize your shortcomings. Don't be worried about asking questions and, and find the help you need. And, uh, and uh, that, you know, if you have to give away a little bit of the company, you know, within reason, give it away because you're better off having 10% of something successful than, you know, 90% of something that's not going anywhere. Uh, so I learned that early on, too. 
What a great, great piece of advice for the younger entrepreneurs. I mean, uh, Dr. Yaffe just summed it up. Rewind what Lynn just said. I mean, he kind of gave you a, a call to John Hopkins MBA right there on entrepreneurship. Really great, great, really great. I love it. Listen, this has been a fascinating interview. I mean, what you're doing with EPR technologies and your passion and commitment to, to you know, not only the historical perspective of CPR, but where it's going in the future with EPR is absolutely dynamic. So I wanted to thank you, Lynn, so oh, much, pleasure. Dr. Yaffe, for coming on the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I encourage everyone to go to uh, Start Engine, you know, slash EPR dash technologies and, uh, and, and uh, see what we are presenting there. 